at you from the Wee Dessert Studio in Houston, Texas. You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Statton, Kevin Cook, and Jeremy Paxton. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Welcome to episode 67 of The Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Statton. I'm joined this week by Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxton. And also in studio, we have... Hunter Atkins, the the man of many voices. Hunter, welcome to uh, the Weekly Brew Podcast and the We Dessert Studio. Long overdue. I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you, man. You guys may remember we had Hunter on about two episodes back. Really terrific content. We wanted to spend a little more time with him. He's a very special guy, and I mean that both in the uh, classical good sense and the pejorative sense. He's he's definitely a special character. But we got him here in studio, and we're excited to have you. And uh, we may have some very special uh, guests to come talk about various events in the world of sports as well. Yeah, we have some big-time guests today. I believe uh, Matthew McConaughey might be stopping mm-hmm. by, uh, Tim Kirkshen, uh, mm-hmm. to provide some you know, World Series recaps. So uh, you know, let's just start off with that, the World Series. I mean, Jeremy, Kevin, I, I know both of you despise baseball. That's a strong uh, word. Okay, you hate baseball. I, it's still too strong. <laughs> not strong enough. Baseball does not entertain me as much as the other sports, but I can get into it when the occasion's appropriate. And the other night, we had Game 7, which mm-hmm. went down in the history books. Chicago Cubs knocking off the Cleveland Indians in 10 innings after a rain delay. 108 years of misery over. I love the game. Did you guys even watch? Did you enjoy it? I did not watch. I was busy. And uh, and I would say the thing I enjoyed most about it was what's been making the rounds on social media, which would be Michael Lee. If you're not familiar with the name, he famously in a California yearbook uh, in high school predicted, I think the year was 1993, he predicted his quote, his senior quote, was uh, uh, Chicago Cubs 2016 World Series champs. You heard it here first. Wait, that that is to you the most important ramification of maybe the greatest sporting event of our lifetime was that some person without any understanding of science or like there's no, I mean, there's no graduated high school. Well, I had some it. understanding of science. I, 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 t- well, I take it back. Okay. What you just said is complete and utter nonsense based on, you know, magic, hocus pocus, fairy dust. That has nothing to do with what was one of the greatest sporting events ever, probably the greatest sporting event of our lifetimes. And the walk away for you is that a boy somehow, you think he predicted this because he easily could have picked any other year. And I'm sure a lot of other boys and girls did pick other years. That's just blasphemous. Well, I think it's indicative of how I feel about baseball. First of all, did not watch the game live. I've seen recaps, of course, since then. But second of all, yeah, that's how much I care about baseball. That The most interesting takeaway for me was what someone said in 1993 in a high school yearbook. And I'm not alone in that. It certainly yeah, made Kevin, the rounds. Should we just, should we just, should just, just be between you and I, right? We just asked them to leave. Baseball is not my strength, and I'm fine with that. I'm not ashamed of it at all. But I do think that uh, I was not alone. Facts, not your strength. I need not my strength. (laughs) I I really need a friend in my uh, in my baseball hating. So Kevin, please stay. Hate is such a strong word, though. I just am disinterested in it. It is such a boring sport. To me, I I just look at the game, and I I just question, you know, Joe Madden a lot in the coaching decisions that he had. Uh, You know, Hendricks started the game. You know, uh, allowed four hits over four and a third inning. Uh, then he was pulled. And, you know, the entire time I'm questioning Madden on some of his coaching decisions. And, you know, uh, Cleveland kept on battling and battling back. And you just wondered if those were going to come back to haunt them. But, you know, his team bailed him out. You know, uh, Chapman going throwing, what, 90 pitches over four-day stretch just blew my mind. Just, you know, uh, the home run in the, the eighth inning that Cleveland, you know, sent it ultimately to extra innings. And, I don't know, it was just a remarkable game, and uh, I think the best thing, one of the best things that happened was the, uh, you know, the riots that transpired in Chicago afterwards. If you look at the uh, Chicago police scanner, there was just some pure gold. Well, also, be, be careful, you know, in 2016 to support riots. I'm just, uh, you may want to be, yeah. 
But it seems take. like a trendy thing to do, actually. Um, but anyways, yeah, no, really fun, though. I actually watched the last probably 20 minutes of the game, the most baseball I've watched for that long consistently all year long. Wait, hold on. I went to a baseball game with you this year. You were there for nine innings. Did you told me to I know. I didn't watch it. That's my point. That's my point. I was talking to people on my left and my right. I created a person in the next seat to talk to them because I didn't. I, that, that's all that it was. Therapist. Absolutely. But your girlfriend was sitting next to you, and I was sitting next to you. So you're telling me that you created somebody else i actually don't remember who i was sitting next to like that's how fuzzy the event is for me but no i I watched the last 20 minutes of the game i think i was rooting for the giant microaggression the entire time but as i watched the cubs play i actually really did want them to win i thought about what that meant for the city i thought about what that meant for the team was your high school nickname the giant microaggression no no it wasn't but actually now that i look back it should have been (laughs) yeah so i don't know if you guys had the chance to read the uh, new york times recap of the game but i'm just going to read a little uh, a bit from it but i thought it was just beautiful prose yeah i know right Right? It's, it's, it's not the Houston Chronicle. Gosh. <laughs> Uh, but uh, here's a line in here. Sometimes the Cubs were good. More often, they were just bad. But since 1908, they had not done what so many other teams had, not even through the fluke or plain luck. The United States fought two world wars. The Soviet Union grew to dominance and then imploded. Diseases were wiped off the earth. And technology took us from the newfangled automobiles to moon rockets and beyond. And still, the Cubs could not win the World Series. Let's not forget that also women couldn't vote. True. That is very true. <laughs> and if you're Donald Trump, you still want that to happen. <laughs> Uh, The last line here is, uh, but 2016 was the 108th year after their last title, and baseball is sewn together with 108 stitches. This had to be the year, and it was the year. And uh, joining us now to actually talk about that is going to be Tim Kirchin. And, you know, I'm just, you know, very surprised that you're here in the studio today. And uh, we definitely appreciate you for joining us in the We Desert studio. And, you know, you were there in Cleveland watching the Cubs make history what was your reaction well i'm very short so i could barely see it to be honest i but for what i saw on a a a television camera in the corner it was guys it was the greatest game ever played on a wednesday with a home run by a 40 plus year old hatcher who shaves his chest it was it was remarkable so i have to ask uh tim you know what is it with baseball writers both yourself and ken rosenthal Short guys. Virgins. <laughs> and baseball and writing, it's a lonely combination. So, you know, to tell me the takeaway here, what's the significance of the moment to you, Tim? What was the feeling you had as you were sitting there watching history transpire? Well, I was so high that I, uh, you know, guys, on the moment, okay, Tim Kirchens never, he's very straight edge. Uh, you got to realize these teams hadn't won in so long. And the sport, you know, let's be honest, only weirdos really like it. And to bring the country together, the ratings were off the charts. Uh, the sacrifice plays, the overmanaging, this is what baseball is all about. I could not agree more. I think that actually speaks to my point about baseball being at times virtually unwatchable. I'll, I'll tell you what, it's the 162 games. I mean, I, I think the ratings throughout the playoffs, especially on Fox, were through the roof with the Cubs. And I think a lot of people were fascinated by the back and forth. I heard some references that this you know, series was similar to a college football college football game. Uh, so it just had a lot of high drama. But I think that gets lost in a 162-game season. People don't want to watch baseball for five months. I don't want to watch baseball for a month, even. Well, 162 games means you're going to get thousands of sacrifice flies. <laughs> what are you guys talking about? Is that the most exciting play in baseball? Time? I wrote a book. It's, it's all about it. <laughs> it's, in, it's in the title. I have a new memoir coming out about my, you know, the other reasons I'm lonely. But... Uh, <laughs> 
anyway, guys, you got to you got to appreciate what this meant to the cities too. These history, Chicago, these are baseball towns. Uh, you know, maybe here in Texas, you don't get it. Certainly do not. Well, as Sports Illustrated predicted, uh, the Astros are going to win the World Series next year. We'll see if that actually comes to fruition. But, uh, you know, another sport that is actually in season right now, uh, the Houston Rockets uh, started, what, last Wednesday against the Lakers. Drop the game. No, no, no. Thank you, Tim. Uh, you, you, you know. I, I play pickup basketball. I played a Cal Ripkins mid-90s. I, I can I'm ball. You, I'm guessing you play in the post? I, I played on the bench. Uh High character guy. I mean, he's a guy you want on your bench for sure. But thank you for joining us. See you later, guys. Yeah, thank you, Tim. There's a good humor truck I'm going to run after. (laughs) We appreciate you for, uh, you know, joining us, Tim. And uh, kind of going back to the Rockets, both Kevin and I were at the game last Sunday night against the Dallas Mavs. They squeaked it out, one-point win. Uh, James Harden, I I think he's playing well in this new offense, averaging about 31 points per game per 36 minutes, also 12 assists. So it's almost like he's taking on that, uh, you know, point guard role uh, now even more so since Beverly is out. Yeah, and he has the the wherewithal to do so. He has Mike D'Antoni's blessing to play his brand of basketball. And while there is sort of an old school part of me that thinks you got to make guys conform to the system, play the right way, the way the quote you always hear, I just let James Harden be James Harden. He's a special player. I want to see what happens when you give him every opportunity to maximize what he can do on the court and to limit his liabilities. What are these platitudes we're speaking in? Like, can we, we, we got to break down, by the way, I'm, I had to remove the booster seat that Tim was sitting in so I could sit back down. Wait, get rid of these platitudes. Yeah. We need to let him play his game. Kevin, you are much more intelligent than that. Don't rely on these like awful axioms and platitudes that Colin Coward spits out. Yeah. Okay, let's have a conversation. There are four of us sitting in some weird apartment uh, with studio. Some... studio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, like, yeah. clear the fog, mm-hmm. right? Let's just get to the part about, is this team going to be good? Is this team going to be bad? And yes, quote-unquote, let's let James Harden play his game. Okay, D'Antoni, by the way, seems to let everybody play their game. He's the right coach. He's the right coach for the right situation. I don't think they're going to be competitive for a title. I don't think it's a fair expectation. I don't think it's something I'm... No, no one has that expectation. expectation. So are you are you satisfied with like a six seed and not getting a lottery pick? What I want is for them to be fun to watch. I want them to be entertaining because that's, I think, the ceiling for what they're going to be able to accomplish this year. I'd love to see them in the postseason. Of course, I'm not expecting a victory over any of the teams that are likely to finish above them in the Western Conference, but I do want them to be fun to watch. And I got to say... Watch them against the Mavs. I've watched them a couple times. They, they played a fun brand of basketball, Mavs and I enjoy it. No, the Mavs are not good. I, I think the Rockets are better, and that's that's a good benchmark for how good you could potentially be with the talent they have on the roster. So I'm satisfied with watching a team I think is going to be enjoyable, entertaining. It's going to play some high-octane offense. It's going to let James Harden do everything and not just rely on him for scoring, but really give him opportunities to make plays for other guys and make them better, which has been something that has been lacking in the past two or three years of Rockets basketball. What about Clint Capella? We heard a lot of... Talk this week about James Harden and Dwight Howard, and uh, you know a rift between the two. You know, both claiming that there, you know, there was no bad blood. Uh, Capella obviously is the heir apparent in the post, and uh, you know he's what bringing down, uh, you know, just over twelve boards per thirty-six minutes. So, is he what is he the guy the Rockets need down low? Does he fit D'Antoni's system? If there is no bad blood between Harden and Dwight Howard, then James Harden is a saint. I mean, (laughs) I think everyone in this town had bad blood with Dwight Howard after his performance. First in Los Angeles, then here. He is an unlikable character. I think it's addition by subtraction. He's talented, but I don't want him on the team. And it speaks to the idea of being able to enjoy it and watch the team and have fun doing so. I want to root for this team. I find them easier to root for 
for now with the characters they have on board than they did this time last year. People talk, Houston fans talk about Clint Capella like he's the prettiest girl they finally got laid by. You know, like, <laughs> and it, it's, it, he's, the reason why people are going crazy about him is because of his value, by the way. I've slept with girls that are less attractive than Clint Capella. I'll freely admit that. He's just, uh, you know, he's good. But why, the conversation kind of has to stop there. Uh, again, his greatest asset is that he's so cheap, right? And they were able to let a guy go that they didn't care about anymore and replace him with somebody that's good enough to play. But that's, he, I don't know, he's certainly not that special. I don't, I think he's probably just above the middle of the tier of big men in the league. He's very athletic. It's awesome. He and Harden on pick and roll, pretty good. Uh, he got bullied by Howard last night the entire game. And that, that gets to what I really would love to focus on is, again, getting away from platitudes, getting away from, you know, like letting Harden off the leash, that BS. So let's talk about defense, like what defense really means. And now what defense really means, how it really works. And I feel like too often we say that this team is bad at defense. Let's explain why. So for anybody listening at home, uh, I'm just going to explain very simply what you can do at home, sitting from your couch or, or wherever, watching the game, how you can be a scout. Okay, watch this. The amount of space that individual Rockets defenders give to their opponents is grotesque. That is a problem. Watch Eric Gordon. Watch how much space he gives the opposing point guards he often has to guard very badly. The measure of a very good individual defender is basically how much can you stick your body against the body of your opponent. How long can you do that for? How closely can you get so that you create basically you know, a barrier to every lane that that player can move? How do you fight over, usually you want to go over a screen? Eric Gordon is really bad at that. Like, I, I'm just saying, if you're at home, watch him. Watch his defense because... Yes, defense is, is team-oriented. You have to have all five working together usually. But every time that guy gets broken down, the rest of the dominoes fall. So that's one. Then this idea of team defense. Okay, watch the way they shift to the weak side. If anybody doesn't know what the weak side is, it's that if the ball is on the left side of the court, the right side of the court can be usually quickly passed to around the three-point line or baseline to an open man because the defense has been shifted over to where the ball is. The Rockets are really terrible. They are so flat-footed and... It all fall to me. That all falls on Harden at the top for the weak side, and then Ryan Anderson. He is so. I was about to curse. He is so. I'm sorry. He's so <laughs> flat-footed. He's so slow. Okay. Then the third thing I think is really important to understand is like, defense is really about a mentality and identity. You do not have to be the largest guy in the court. You don't have to be the tallest or the thickest or the bulkiest. You have to have the mentality of if the ball is about to go up. You get your butt down there, you find a guy to box out, and you go for it. And the Rockets simply don't have players, really with the exception of Capella and sometimes Harrell, where their identities are that type of player, are those roles. Sure. Reinerson's just, it's not who he is. So the idea that he's playing the four, okay, like in you know the new age where we want players to be faster and leaner and shoot better, he's ideal. Uh, not if the other guys in the rotation with him are just as porous on defense. So... You know, like, I'm really, uh, maybe I'm a little biased, I guess, because I cover the team perhaps more than anybody here. But, the again, the platitudes about the gushing over Harden, uh, there's no reason to be so easy on this team. They were 500 last year after coming off of a semifinals appearance. They're probably going to be around 500 this year. I spoke with somebody in the organization who told me that he expects the team to go 7-13 and 13 in their first 20 games. Pathetic. You know, you want to say that's like, that's, well, the schedule's hard. Uh, the schedule's hard if you're a bad team. Like, drop the mic. 
here, I'm going to throw some more platitudes at you. These come from one of my uh, one of my favorite coaches coaching at any level in basketball would be Kelvin Sampson. He said, people don't come to watch defense. They come to watch that biscuit go in the basket, which is one of my favorite expressions. That's what I'm there for. I don't care if the defense is subpar. I'm not there to watch defense. So, I, mean, I guess you don't care about winning. <laughs> Honestly, I don't. when I don't think a championship is in play, then I, I would like them to win as many games as possible. But my happiness in watching this team, my enjoyment is not going to live or die with their win-loss record. Let's bring this up to college football. I mean, last night, LSU played Alabama, and it was a 10-0 game. It was boring. There were zero They're points awful. scored in the first yes, three quarters. False equivalency because all of college football is, is boring. Oh, 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 uh, you know, I think, I think we might have to uh, yeah, you know, ask her to leave right now. Do you guys want me to come back? I'm still, I didn't leave. I was just standing behind the kitchen island here. You couldn't see me. But, you know, I, I prefer, like, high-powered offenses. I, I enjoy watching a team like Baylor. Well, not this week. Uh, I enjoy watching a team like U of H, a team like uh, – uh, Oklahoma, Texas Tech. I like points on the board. Are we, off the Rockets? Are we done? No, I'm just saying I, I, I agree with the sentiment of in sports, I like to see offense. And I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why people are going to want to watch James Harden this year. They're going to want to watch, you know, Westbrook up in Oklahoma City. Uh, Oklahoma City is not going to be a contender this year, but they're going to be fun to watch, especially when Westbrook's booking up triple doubles almost every single game and that's one reason why people don't like baseball is they don't like these low scoring slow paced games they want to see that fast pace that action that's why people in america love football you know even though the ratings are kind of dipping this year but people like those high powered offenses such as golden state and you know even another team that's performing well this year so far as the clippers and uh you know i think we actually have doc rivers joining us right now i think that a lot of people believe that uh you know the spurs and the warriors are the class of the NBA, but you know, right now the uh, the Clippers they had a big win on Saturday night against the Spurs and uh, Coach Rivers. I mean, does your team have what it takes to finally become a contender and not a pretender? What makes you think that you can even ask that? <laughs> you saw the game, you know. We uh, they're just a bunch of athletes, and uh, you know, once you get into the dance, it's it's anybody's game. So tell me about that win against the Spurs the other night. I mean, you absolutely destroyed them. Blake Griffin played well. Uh, J.J. Redick played well. Chris Paul. I mean, is this a team that can be a contender against the Warriors? I've said for years, you know, DJ, he's like Bill Russell, right? And, and, and Blake Griffin, he, he's like Superman. Uh, you know, it, they talk about super teams. We got a super, you know, superhero. He, uh, of course. So, I mean, today's NBA, there is an analytical perspective that emphasizes the three points. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, coaches. How much does that factor into your style of play and the way you approach the game? I approach it by, you know, I walk to the court. That's as far as it goes, huh? You know, you you roll the ball out. You say, go get the ball, ball, ball. They make it sound complicated, you know. It's not that big deal. When you got talent, like, uh, you know, we got our big three. I'm very proud of, uh, you know. We got more, we got more depth this year, right? Uh, th- that's gonna be important when you get playoff time. That, that you know those minutes turn into hours, you know, uh, especially when we got DJ getting hacked. Or, you know, can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, fouls. Yeah. Let's get rid of them. He keeps it simple. I like it. No, that's, that's brilliant. I'm curious, you know, Daryl Morey is a guy who has a lot of control over the way the Rockets, you know, uh, fell out the roster, and he kind of has that analytical perspective. You have the same degree of control in your team. Uh, what, is, what is your perspective on what Well, I, I got more control, so I got him beat. Next question. Yeah, so congratulations, uh, Coach Rivers. Uh, we appreciate you joining us this week on the podcast. And uh, congratulations on beating the Spurs. And it was the Clippers' largest win in 160 games against the Spurs. Again, the Clippers knock off San Antonio 116-92 to on Saturday night. Coach Rivers, we appreciate you stopping by. Let me just also say, you know, 
Golden State, people go crazy about it. They lost to the Lakers. I mean, anything can happen. You know. Am I? Do I have to leave? No. Can I still? Am I? Yeah, you, you can stay if you want. I've been sitting under the table this whole time. Did, did Doc crush you? He hit me with something. I. It was dark. Right, Tim, get out of there. Get out of my pants, Tim. Wow. It's a star-studded episode of the Weekly Britter. I think this is the most celebrities that we've ever had in, in one show. Yeah, certainly. Oh, but we're not done. Who, who do we have left? I think uh, Matthew McConaughey might be joining us. What is he going to discuss? We talk about the Bible. We talk about, uh, you know, University of Texas football. Charles Strong, what a great job he's done. You know, he's, a, he's quite the man out there. And, uh, you know, I thought University of Texas shows some temerity in being uh, – what's that team you guys like? What's that? What's that? What's the name of that team, that cute little team that – that you guys, that you just belong to. What's that? They're called the Cubs? What are they called? I, I think you're referring to uh, the Baylor embarrassments. Is that, is that what you're talking about? <laughs> That's a good one. If I was in the minute joke, I'd laugh at that. <laughs> so, so Matthew, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, Academy Award winning actor, a uh, huge supporter of University of Texas football. You're in a suite at every single game. Your Longhorns, they've won two straight games uh, against rivalry teams. Uh, you know, they knocked off Baylor last week beat Texas Tech in Lubbock this past week. And how, how excited are you about Coach Strong and the prospects of UT football? I'll tell you something, brother. He's got the toughness. He's got the mentality. He's got – there's a guy who, you know, he's, he's from Batesville, Arkansas. All right, that's, that's a rough and tumble town. This is a man who watched parades go through his neighborhood with hoods. You know that? You know, Charles Strong, he, he just hasn't given – he hasn't gotten the time – you know, really th- sink his teeth into things. And, you know, just when he starts getting his own recruits, just when he starts getting command of that, you know, he won the recruiting battle against uh, Kevin Sumlin this offseason, right? Is that right? Back me up somebody on that. You're right. I agree. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> and just now you're going to pull the rug right from under him? Uh-huh. That's not right. You've you, you got to give a man a chance. Uh, you know, uh, I think that Charles Strong's the right guy for the job. I just think you, you gotta give him a, more time, get in a rhythm. That 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 that's what it's all about. If Charlie Strong isn't the right man for the job, which uh, you could argue that the uh, Texas donor base does not feel that he is, who uh, who would be your next pick? Probably Jesus. <laughs> Can he out recruit Nick Saban? Uh, I mean, considering almost at this table, our recruits in his army. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to say so. You know, brother, let me tell you so. You, you, got, you got some gall coming on here asking me who you think is going to replace Charlie Strong. I mean, it, it, you're, you're just perpetuating the kind of hocus-pocus fairy dust that uh, everybody out there is, you know, dumping on him. He, he, the guy, he's a man who knows how to coach. And, and it's just unfair, the kind of pressure he's under. Uh, let's be honest. That has to do with race, too. I'm not afraid to say, look, you want know, to say I'm some sort of, like, you know, lighting the heels guy from Hollywood. Now, that's not true. I'm Texas. I'm always going to be Texas. And I, I think a lot of the pressure that he gets is, is because of the color of his skin. I'm not afraid to say it. I think that's a fair point. And uh, it, it's amazing to me how college football right now, uh, winning is above all. And Texas, they're not satisfied with 8-4. and four. Uh, Baylor is not satisfied with firing a coach who covered up rapes. And uh, I know both myself and Jeremy were at the Baylor-TCU game uh, this week, and for those of you that aren't familiar, there were some Baylor coaches that sent out a, uh, a coordinated tweet on Friday night defending Art, Bri- Art defending Art Bryles and uh, claiming that he didn't know about certain rape allegations. And uh, Saturday at the game, it was supposed to be a greenout. 
It's been marketed all year as a green out, green out TCU. Uh, the players voted to have a protest game and wear all black in support of Art Bryles. There were people at the game selling shirts with CAB, Coach Art Bryles. It's disgusting to me how the university is still supporting these people. There was a, a donor suite, I believe, near the 50-yard line with a flag up in the second half with CAB, Coach Art Bryles. The team is distracted right now. The assistants have given up on this team. Uh, the players have given up, and I've never seen so much discontent between Baylor fans. I mean, I think last night I saw a tweet that said that there was an opportunity to potentially see a fight between three different factions at the game. Baylor fans wearing green, Baylor fans wearing black, and TCU fans. And uh, I was just disgusted by the game. I actually left at halftime, not because of the play on the field, but just because of everything off of the field. And, uh, you know, Baylor has one home game left against Kansas State. I'm not going to go. Can I jump in? Uh, I have a question. First of all, I, th- I think Matthew had to leave to uh, his Lincoln was double parked outside. But um, so, you know, I'm not from here. I'm not from Texas. I was, I was born and raised in New York City where college football is not nearly the sort of, um, you know, it doesn't have the same fervor. Right. You know, you were, I guess, comfortable enough to say as somebody that went to Baylor that you're disgusted, that, yeah. you know, it was upsetting to you. The people that you know that do not feel that way. Do, do you guys know people that are staunchly yeah, – what, what is the arguments that they put forth? I think the main thing is they say that the Board of Regents screwed up and they're not being transparent, which I do agree to an extent that the Board of Regents has mishandled the situation and that they are not being transparent. I think that's blatantly obvious. The problem that I have is that Art Bryles was the leader of the program. He claims that he might have delegated this down to you know lesser coaches, but at the end of the day – it falls like leader attitude reflects leadership, right? I, I believe that's like a remember the Titans quote. But I, I, I think Bryles had to know to some extent, and he's gone on some publicity too, or saying that he knows that some wrongdoings happened and he's taken responsibility for him. But then the coaches, these assistant coaches led by his son Kendall Bryles, the offensive coordinator, they just consistently try to put out this, you know, brainwashing, this content, this propaganda, and it's just disgusting to me as a Baylor fan. I mean. I used to work for Baylor Athletics. I used to be a sports information director. When I was a student at Baylor, I used to sit in R. Bryles' office every Sunday after football games. Uh, you know, he was a great football coach. Uh, he obviously has a lot of love for the kids on his team, I think, to uh, you know, a great fault, a huge detriment. I think him having too much love for his players is what caused, you know, what, 17 alleged rapes and sexual assaults and happening since what 2011 is that the stat i i don't know yeah, the yeah. culture at baylor right now is toxic and it's not going to change until they bring in a new head coach there we have a new head coach that's Actually, not the problem well the problem is jim grove doesn't know what's going on he's just right. essentially a baby well it's also not that they also don't have protocols in place for a proper office to handle these things on campus right i mean it's, it's not just that they need a new head coach like you talked about how the culture is toxic the school is toxic right now you know, I was I was at the game yesterday for for more than awesome ones. I actually got to talk to a lot of people who were wearing uh, black, wearing our brow stuff. I saw people with the paint on their face. I saw people with it on their hands. And I sort of asked them, you know, went up to a few of them and asked, you know, why? Why are you doing this? Like, why? Why support our brows? There's no chance of them coming back ever. And Kindle brows and that entire staff is gone at the end of the season. And the universal answer, almost in concert, was that Art Bryles was the victim of, you know, uh, I heard PC culture. I heard uh, scapegoating. Yeah, well, it was a lot of scapegoating. Yeah, he was he's a victim of scapegoating. This idea that he covered up rapes was completely, um, you know, foreign to them. They they were in this camp that he is the sort of victim, the scapegoat, and that the Board of Regents is so insufferably incompetent 
that they because Baylor's history of this. You go back, you know, twenty five years. Baylor sort of every few years goes through some sort of administrative shakeup that displays this sort of corporate incompetence on the part of the board of regents. Because it's a Baptist yeah. university that has thirty five people on its board of regents. Right. I mean, you look they at, want to act like well, sex doesn't happen. Yeah, right. and and you look at every other university in the state that's public. They have what regent boards that are you know between five and nine people. I mean, the more people you add, the more opinions you have, and that's when you get nothing accomplished. Right, and I completely agree with. That. And I would say that the, that Browse's supporters would probably agree with that too. I actually wasn't upset at the people that were buying those shirts. I wasn't upset at the people that were selling them. I think that it was just a reflection of just how poorly the administration has handled this entire thing. And it's not going to get any better. That's 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 the horrible thing about this is that for Baylor fans, for people in the Big 12 that want to see this go away, because I know it's not just us that are tired of hearing about it. The reality is nothing is going to happen. This is a horrible situation and nothing is going to get better until Baylor hires a new head coach. And yes, try starts to change the culture on campus, getting the Title IX office up and running again like it should have been this entire time. This is not going to go away anytime soon. It's just going to suck until it does. So to me, I, I remember being furious with what happened at Penn State several years ago. And a lot of the people sticking up for Joe Paterno saying, no, Joe, he's like a grandpa. He would never let this happen. That's the same mentality that these Baylor people have. And honestly, I would not be surprised if a lot of them are Donald Trump supporters as well. Um, I, 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 I honestly think that some of these people are blind to some of the bigger issues at hand. And... I was just disgusted driving away from McLean Stadium well, yesterday. There are still people sticking up for Joe Paterno, by the way. I think they just honored him here and, at, and uh, that, this past season, which, you know, I mean, regardless of, we, I, I just, like, I don't blame the masses of people that support our brows. What I blame Why are not? the people. No, I don't. I don't. I don't. They're, the people that support our brows are the ones that uh, that perpetuate sexual violence. Rape culture. The rape culture. They are continuing to give this black eye for Baylor University. Maybe that's not the best term to use, but... There's a reason why the national media continually writes articles each week. It's because you have the football coaches releasing some statements supporting Art Bryles on a Friday night before your biggest game. I actually sent out a tweet Friday night. Uh, so if you're not familiar, Baylor football coaches on Friday night sent out a tweet, uh, you know, supporting uh, Coach Art Bryles and, uh, you know, everything that has happened within the past uh, you know, a few months, especially uh, capped off last week by that Wall Street Journal article. But uh, there was a tweet that was sent out. And so I, you know, responded um, as I typically do on social media. Uh, so I sent, I get that BU football coaches are sticking up for Coach Art Bryles, but there's a game tomorrow. Focus on TCU, not something that you can't change. I had a lot of people send me, you know, saying that I was like biased because I used to work for Baylor Athletics. People criticizing me for, uh, you know, not supporting Coach Art Bryles, including one person, and that's Staley Levy. That is Coach Art Bryles' daughter. She has multiple Twitter accounts. Uh, she has one that's private, which is just, you know, her name. Uh, but she has other ones, and this one is at Lizzie1CAB. So uh, if you don't know, that's Staley Levy. That's Art Bryles' daughter. Doxing Yeah, wow. she, uh, she sent me a tweet saying, uh, like when they tried to focus so hard on Texas, but the border regions decided to distract them so close to the game time. So this is a problem. I think that his entire family, his entire coaching staff is blind to the issue. So, you know, last last night when Baylor was getting blown out, I decided to, uh, you know, kind of fire back at her. I said, uh, I, I sent a tweet saying, any thoughts on the game, Staley? And she responded, who's that? And I said, uh, you're not fooling anyone. It's widely known that you're Staley Levy, to which I was blocked on Twitter shortly after, but that's the problem. Breaking news, yeah. Yeah. On the weekly brew. Yeah, I know you guys did this. Oh, yeah. of course. We, we 
But I don't know. Yeah. The whole thing is toxic to me. And I haven't spoken with you specifically, Hunter, on the Baylor situation. But you have covered Art Bryles and, you know, essentially said that, you know, winning is above all in college football. And, you know, that's the culture that persists in our society. I- I'm curious, with what you see going on right now at Baylor University, this continual lack of awareness for sexual assault and continuing to cover things up, pointing fingers and not accepting the blame themselves. What is your reaction to the whole situation? Yeah, just to correct, you know, there's another platitude you used, the idea that like winning is above all. And you said that, like, that's what my work boiled down to. I'm not casting you for suggesting that, but uh, I need to defend that that's not the point of the story. That's not what I would ever say. And even, you know, Kevin, we spoke, you threw that out. Like, it's actually far more nuanced than it has to do exactly with the type of seriousness and complicated nature of sexual assault on campus. Like that, that's what it is. It's that it's an issue that, you know, right now it seems that um, all across the country, not just in sports, but outside of it, whether it's you know locker room talk and all that stuff, we're having conversations right now about uh, the treatment of women and sexual assault uh, in a way that we we just haven't before. So it's not that winning is above all. And the, the one of the examples I threw out when we spoke, Kevin, is that you know like there are all these ridiculous violations for NCAA rules that coaches get blacklisted for like if you text a, a player too many times however if a player on your team um, years later it comes to the surface that that player raped a woman you know like there's nothing in the NCAA rule book about that so it's not the winning trumps all it's just what can fly in the NCAA what can't fly in the NCAA right Let's take this to political scenario right now. Uh, the election is coming up on Tuesday. Donald Trump has, what, 12 women that have accused him of sexual assaults. Uh, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, you know. I haven't jumped in and, 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 you know, offered my claim that he sexual assaulted me yet. But You're a New York guy. Do you have a Trump story that we all need to hear? We were enjoying locker room talk, and then he grabbed me. I don't want to get into it, but this is a safe place. It feels very unsafe. (laughs) Is that an indictment on our culture that we have a presidential candidate like Donald Trump? And then, uh, you know, also that we have Hillary Clinton, whose husband notoriously had sexual scandals in the White House. And she notoriously, uh, you know, kind of defamed accusers. Is that a problem that, you know, we we say that we want to get rid of this rape culture, but we have two presidential candidates that have, you know, allowed sexual so sexual misconduct to persist for so long? Yeah, false equivalency, by the way, comparing Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky to Donald Trump and the cavalcade of women that he's, you know. But there have also been several women that have come forward and, you know, claimed sexual assault toward, uh, you know, Bill Clinton. So I think that. Yeah, like at least half a dozen. Also very clearly uprooted, though, during this election by Donald Trump, who paid to have him at his debate. I'm just saying, like, false equivalency. But but your greater point about rape culture, sexual assaults, I'll say this, you know, it, it, it is. It's an interesting time in that we are like really talking about women's issues and holding people responsible uh, in ways that we hadn't before. I'm, I'm sorry, trying to articulate here, but it's that it is no longer the standard for castigating somebody for this, convicting somebody for this, was if a man probably genetically was tied to a sexual assault. And now what we're doing is we're realizing that the entire world that surrounds victims in these situations is complicit a lot of the time. That's what goes back to Baylor. That's what goes back to locker room talk, Donald Trump. It's that, you know, there's a world and, and an arena around, like a group around women that become victims that is like sort of either complicit or, you know, they don't stand, they don't step up to, you know, out the perpetrator, right? And it, you don't have to be, you don't have to go to the police about it, but you can say to somebody like Donald Trump, that's not okay. You can say to, whether it's a teammate, if you're a football player, or you can say to an administrator or a coach, uh, excuse me, you have to say something. 
And that's, you know, what relate. I know you want to talk about, you guys want to talk about the Harvard situation with Harvard soccer. It's, 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 it's frankly, like, that's a really interesting example because you would think, well, maybe they're overreacting by canceling the season because they had a Google chat where they were saying nasty things about women. Okay, that's definitely not comparable to the rapes that happened at Baylor. But the whole point is that we have to be far more confident in calling people out and saying this behavior is totally appre- uh, abhorrent. Right? Like that's what it's all about. And that's the, the whole locker room discussion. It's like we say people say nasty things behind closed doors all the time. Uh, some of those people got to be called out. It's you know these private conversations. You shouldn't be having them privately either. That's a very good point regarding Harvard Athletics. Uh, and for those of you that aren't familiar, uh, the Harvard soccer team, which was leading the Ivy League, uh, looked like they were going to head to the NCAA tournament. Were banned for the season. I think it's a good move from uh, the university to say we're not going to allow this to happen. Uh, the question that I have is, if it was a football team, would they do this? Yeah, the stakes weren't that. High. You know, the stakes weren't nearly high enough. I totally, I totally agree with you on that. Uh, it works perfectly with the Baylor discussion. Yes, these are not comparable examples. You know, some boys having some nasty, dirty talk uh, in a Google chat about ladies, about young women, like that compared with sexual assaults. Uh, yes, your point is perfectly made. But it's all part of the same cultural uh, uh, disease or poison that there is, which just says that all of that is okay. It's all part of the same idea. I mean, the same people who have the idea that it is okay to analyze women, to view them as sexual objects, and to share them as though they were commodities amongst themselves is the same attitude that I think, in a much more extreme uh, version of action, leads to sexual assault, leads to people finding that it is okay to take women's bodies without their consent and to not really feel as though they've done something wrong. You know, whenever I hear the term rape culture, because that, that can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And so this is more nuanced discussion than I think we realize. But, you know, I mean, I want to know what utopia, what society embodies all the ideals that we're talking about. Because when I look across anywhere else on the planet, I mean, this is not, oh, sorry, I don't know where I was going. I just, I'm just, this is a much more nuanced subject than I think we, we realize. Okay, so there might not be a society right now that embodies all of these ideals, but that doesn't mean that we should not, like, strive for it. We're talking about human beings right yes and human beings are a certain kind of thing and no, that's they're not objects no they're not not objects but i'm saying that we we have a nature and so this is something that i think is more of an issue that is ongoing and will forever be ongoing because we are what we are it doesn't mean that we can't no you're right and also, i absolutely you're right you know just to jump in and sort of i i see exactly what you're saying because i'll be very candid and happily say to the world that i say terrible things about people privately I say things that are sexist. I say things that are racist. Or, and I do it because I happen to enjoy a type of cruel sense of humor privately. Um, maybe that's got to change, right? Uh, there's a human nature perhaps to laugh at some things behind closed doors to, I don't know, like belittle people. And there's nothing, you know, it, it might be a good thing that we're having conversations about this stuff because maybe privately, several years from now, several people, several generations from now, you know, they're not even going to privately discuss things the way that we do now because they're going to realize it's, it's, yeah, you can get kicked out of it privately, but it actually bleeds into uh, in subtler ways in the public sphere, and we got to change that. That's a very good point. And uh, Hunter, we definitely appreciate you joining us in studio today. So it's been absolutely great talking with you for the last 35 plus minutes. Are we wrapping up? I still, I, I'm, Kevin, I'm between your legs. I'm sorry. I just, I couldn't find my way out from under this table. It's, uh, it's so large. Tim Kirchin has not left. We can't get him to leave the studio, but, uh, you know. If you guys drop some crumbs, I'll be fine. I, I, I could probably go a few days like this. 
I just call my wife, tell her I'm so sorry I got lost again. Got some chicken fingers that I dropped. Oh my, yes, yes, where? It's so dark. So if you liked hearing our conversations with uh, Tim Kirkshin, uh, Doc Rivers, and also Matthew McConaughey, we've got two pretty good guests coming up here on the podcast. We've got Drew Doherty from Texans TV, going to dive into Andre Johnson announcing his retirement. Also, Arian Foster and, uh, you know, probably the two greatest Texans on uh, the offensive side of the ball, both retiring within the last month. Also, we'll talk about uh, CJ Fedorowicz, kind of the emergence that he's had at the tight end position. Also, Brock Osweiler, and if he can kind of uh, regain some sort of control and uh, resemblance of a quarterback after the bye week as the Texans head into Jacksonville this week. Uh, also, we talk a little Texas A&M and SEC football with Sam Conn Jr. from ESPN.com. So, stay tuned for that but uh you know kevin again i mentioned that i was at a, a tailgate this past week and uh there were a lot of baked goods unfortunately none of them were from we desserts and i can tell you that if i was going to the baylor kansas state game on november 15th i would bring we desserts uh, but right now it's also fall you've got a lot of thanksgiving parties coming up uh, pumpkin pies are in season kevin if you want a pumpkin pie or if you want to take uh you know tailgate food to you know say that louisville u of h game coming up shortly you should probably go to Wee Desserts, right? Well, let me ask you something. Now that you've had Wee Desserts, when you had to have other baked goods at Baylor, how terrible were they? I wasn't satisfied. They were terrible, right? I would say horrendous. They were horrendous. I agree. Part of the culture there? <laughs> terrible baked goods? Yes. Yeah. And so change the culture. That's what Wee Desserts is really all about. It's about love. Uh, everything is baked with love. Everything is served with love. It is all about love, unity, and togetherness at We Desserts. And they support all the ideals that make this country great, that make this podcast great. And that's why they're our sponsor, and that's why we love them. Uh, go buy Penny and Jen there. We'll hook you up. Uh, the 10% discount if you listen to this podcast. Just tell them you're a Weekly Brew listener. They love to hear from, from our uh, listeners who have been in there many times, enjoying the discounts they get. And you can get anything that your heart desires. I'll just say it. Anything that you've ever wanted in your life, you can find at We Desserts. It's 3411 Kirby's where they're located. You can call them. You can tweet them. You can uh, text them. What's some of the ways to reach them? Facebook them. I mean, they're just everywhere. Omnipresent. And write them a good review on Yelp because there are a lot of mean people on Yelp that are saying a lot of stuff that frankly is bullshit. So I just want to throw that out there. But um, not about we necessarily. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying Yelp in general I have a problem with. They're not a sponsor of this show. Why are trying not to curse? Oh, yeah. It didn't happen. But uh, <laughs> I'm the worst about that personally. But um, anyway, so yeah, we deserve 3411 Kirby. 10% off everything that is good in this world is located within those doors. Absolutely. So make sure to stop by 3411 Kirby here in Houston. Also, we want to make sure that you follow our social media channels as well. You can just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And you can also follow our website, weeklybrewcast.com. We post great content there each Monday morning. Uh, so we want to make sure that you go there. Uh, but we've got two great guests joining us here shortly. Again, Drew Doherty from Texans TV. Also, Sam Khan Jr. from ESPN.com and the SEC Network. So without further ado, it's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Drew Doherty, host of Texans TV and the team's senior integrated media manager. And uh, Drew, thanks for joining us this week. And, you know, during the Texans bye week, arguably one of the greatest players in franchise history retired after 14 seasons in the NFL. And and writing his goodbye message on Instagram, uh, Andre Johnson wrote that, quote, Houston is my destination and I'm coming home and I will always be a Texan. How will his legacy be remembered by the Texans organization and its fans? Without question, he's the greatest offensive player in team history. And, you know, a lot of folks would argue that he's the best player in team history. And everybody that ever dealt with him from a very tip-top, you know, Bob McNair, on down to probably janitors and, and folks that take tickets and stuff like that, everyone has 
great, great things to say about him, me included. He's just a class act all the way. He was awesome. And um, the thing that, that sticks out to me the most about him when I think about him as a player is how remarkably wide open he always seemed to get. Even though other teams knew how great he was and knew the damage he could do to you, he still would just get, I mean, almost butt naked wide open. And it was like, how did that happen? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, that's one of the reasons he's, he's one of the, one of the best wide receivers of his era. And, and, uh, it's one of the reasons he put up so much yardage and so many catches that he did when he was here with us. You know, so you, you're a guy who would know, obviously you're pretty intimately involved with the, with the team and what they do. What are your most memorable moments of Andre? Cause for me personally, I think of him just whooping the hell out of Cortland Finnegan, which, you know, maybe that's because it was kind of out of character because it was turned so easily like into a memorable gif, but that's the lasting image that sticks with me. I wonder what are, what are the ones that stick with you? You know, the ones that stick with me, on the field or, uh, gosh, the week two of 2009, Texans at Tennessee, you know, the week before, the Texans had gotten throttled at home against the Jets. And so there was a lot of gloom and doom around the city. And Tennessee was decent that year. But the Texans went up there and, and fought them, literally. You know, there was a fist fight on the bench. This was the year before the Cortland Finnegan breakage. But uh, Andre had a couple touchdowns. One of them was a you know, a, uh, a one-hander up the right sideline. And he was just amazing in that game. He had 100-some yards receiving. So there's that game. There's about a month later in that season in 09, the Arizona touchdown where he just – I think there's three tombstones currently on the field from just three Cardinals that he blew up on that touchdown that he had. And then in 2010, he had the, the Washington Redskins, you know, the, the touchdown. I think it was to force overtime – um, and they kicked a field goal, and you know, all, also the, the the playoff touchdown catch, you know, the welcome to the playoffs one, that was pretty fun. But you know, it, it's tough to pinpoint just one Andre Johnson moment. I think one of the one of the games that comes to mind is uh, you know that that game back in uh, 2012 against the Jaguars, where the Texans won 43-37, and Johnson just absolutely went off, had that walk off touchdown reception, and uh, you know, he was a guy that always got it done on and off the field, very quiet. Uh, you know, always went about his business. But when you look at his numbers, he ranks among the top 10 in, you know, several offensive categories. Is he a Hall of Fame candidate? And can we can we expect to see him in Canton one day? Uh, yes and yes. I think yes to the first one. If you watched him, if you ever saw him play, you realize how good he was. Um, and I think he will go in Canton. I wonder how how quickly it will happen, though, because the big thing for him more so than, you know, the lack of postseason success, which wasn't really his fault, was the touchdown numbers. And that wasn't really his fault either. He doesn't have a lot of touchdowns. And I think had he scored more more touchdowns, people would have thought a little bit differently about him. He never had double-digit touchdowns in a season. You know, DeAndre Hopkins was the first to do that for the Texans. That happened last year. So I think that that might be a drawback for him. Although working in his favor, you got John McClain with the Houston Chronicle, and John has said it many times. You guys, I'm probably repeating it to you, but John has said when, when he, it's his time to get up to present for the Hall of Fame and for Andre Johnson, he's going to re- read off his stats, and then he's going to read off the quarterbacks that threw Andre Johnson, <laughs> and he's going to sit down. And he said it's going to be a short short uh, argument. So I think he'll get in, but I worry about just the ignorance, you know, on the part of, of uh, you know the national media. They just don't know enough about him because they didn't see him score touchdowns and they didn't see him um, – in but four playoff games. 
you know, it's interesting to me because we have in two consecutive weeks, Arian Foster and Andre Johnson retiring, obviously both, you know, pivotal Texans in terms of this team's trajectory and development. And the outpouring of support has just not been there for Arian like it has for Andre. And I think there's probably a multitude of reasons for that. But but from your perspective, how do you assess their relative impacts on the franchise's trajectory and success? And secondly, why do you think there seems to be such a different sort of sentiment towards Arian than AJ? Well, I'll answer the first part, the, the second part of that first. Adrian, Andre Johnson was here, you got to remember, six years before Arian got here. So there's just like a longer built-in period of, uh, of memory uh, as far as that goes. But then you got to also remember Arian had four great years, and he was injury-plagued in 2013 and last year. So he re- And then he only played in about four or five games his rookie year. So he had four great years, but you know, Andre strung together, what, eight, nine, ten, eleven of them? So I think that's the, the main reason people don't have the same sentiment. Um, but as far as impact on the franchise, you know, no coincidence, Texans started going to the playoffs and started being in the push for the playoffs once they could run the football the way they wanted, and they didn't do that until Arian Foster got there. The guy was an absolute scoring machine. He had 68 starts in Texans history. In his time as a Texan, he scored 68 touchdowns. So he was just automatic as far as getting in the end zone. And that, too, is that's one of the reasons Andre Johnson probably didn't catch as many touchdowns because when you get that close, go the sure thing rather than throwing it up and having something bad happen, perhaps. So I, I think uh, Arian's impact on the franchise is immeasurable. So in a sense, I feel like with these two guys retiring, it represents, at least to me, kind of the close of an era. Uh, you know, So we have a relatively new franchise. You know, It's an expansion franchise. How do you grade out how the Texans have performed since their inception in 2002? Oh, well, you know, you always want to win Super Bowl, so you haven't lived up to that. But uh, it hasn't been all just, uh, you know, tombstones and, and horrid, you know, skeletons of the clock. I mean, it's been okay, you know, but they want to win the Super Bowl, and that's what they're going after. So it's, uh, it's an incomplete as of right now. So, you know, it's interesting, with the Texans kind of coming in, you have a long history with the Oilers. Obviously, a lot of people in the city remember and love the Love You Blue Oilers. I'm a bit young to have been that invested in them, but that I imagine that with, like, with a startup franchise, trying to fill those shoes would be tough, and you're very engaged, obviously, with the fan base. How do you think that the city has taken to the Texans, and have they sort of exercised and replaced all of that Oiler love that existed before they came in? Well, I'm kind of an odd person to ask that, dude. I grew up here. I love the Oilers. No woman will ever break my heart or could break my heart like the Oilers used to. <laughs> um, but I graduated high school in 1996, and I went off to college out of town. And I worked out of town when I graduated college in 2000. And basically from 1996 through 2008, all my autos were spent away from the city. So I missed the first, you know, well, the last few years of the Oilers. I missed that kind of purgatory time where there was no football and then I missed the first six seasons of the franchise seven seasons of the franchise but as far as I can tell I mean there's a big uh fever you know on Sundays for this team and especially when they get going good like in 11 and 12 there's a definite you know hunger and thirst for for more football and they love this team but um you can never replace what the Oilers had but it's not to take away anything from what the Texans are doing I think they start winning you definitely you, you move up there a little bit. But football is always going to be king in this town. The pro football team is always going to be king in this town. And, um, you know, the Texans are, are trying, to, trying to get there, trying to get that Super Bowl. 
Yeah, with Super Bowl 51 coming to Texas this year, coming to the Texans' home stadium at NRG, uh, you know, I I hope the Texans can make it, but I think it's going to be, you know, a little bit of a challenge. But uh, when you look at the first half of this, you know, the season, it looks like the bye week is coming at the perfect time. Uh, How does this help, like, Brock Osweiler after a tough start to the season, you know, especially heading into those tough games on the road at Jacksonville and going to Mexico City against Oakland and then, you know, San Diego and Green Bay and then Indy coming up? I mean, how important is this bye week for him? Well, it's very important. It's really important for the coaches, too, doing the self-scouting and seeing what is working, what needs to change, what they need to kind of disguise a little bit better. You know, one thing that Bill O'Brien's done really well in his two years here, his first two years here, his teams have been excellent after the bye. So if the Texans were, were to kind of hold serve and follow what they've been doing under O'Brien, they're going to be better than 5-3, and three, and that's going to put you into the, you know, maybe 6, excuse me, the, the 12, or the 11, 12, maybe even more win category. Now, that's not a given. It's, it's always a different team, different situation each year. But I kind of like what I've seen from this coaching staff and these teams as far as adjusting and getting better as the season wore on. And speaking of that, you know, teams adjusting, uh, the Texans have struggled the past few years, you know, since Owen Daniels kind of left at the tight end position. And, and, and this year, you know, you've got C.J. Fedorowicz, who's got 28 receptions, you know, just trailing uh, DeAndre Hopkins. And you've got Ryan Griffin with 24 receptions kind of coming on strong. How important has it been, you know, in the scheme of what Bill O'Brien wants to do long term to have solid play at the tight end position? Well, it's very important. And I think they would all say that's they're doing better. The tight ends are playing better because of Brock Osweiler. The tight end said that last Sunday after the win. Uh, basically, they, they said they have a quarterback that can, can run this offense and can get us the football. So that's important. They just got to figure out a way to integrate, you know, DeAndre Hopkins and and Will Fuller and get those guys cranking and, and hitting the, the the deep ball like they they think they can. They know they can um, because they they've been able to utilize the stuff underneath the tight end. So. Yeah, it's it's been good. It's a, it's a vital part of this offense, and you know, Fedorowicz, I think, is starting to come into his own for sure. And one final question for you: You know, with that tough gauntlet of games coming up, and kind of a, a weak AFC South. I mean, Texans currently two and zero in the AFC South. It looks like they are going to head to the playoffs. Do you see them making a push? this season uh, to contend in the AFC? I, I mean, just when I look at it from an outsider's perspective, it seems like it's you know almost a lock that New England is going to come out of this division, out of this league. Yeah, well, we say that every year, but it doesn't always happen. Um, you know, I'm kind of with you. I always think New England is the odds-on favorite, and I think they are right now. But funny things happen once uh, January rolls around. Um, we've seen the Ravens get past, and we've seen the Steelers get past, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I think the Texans can absolutely push. they got to get – Get things going offensively, though, and be more of a threat, like I was mentioning earlier, downfield. Keep being able to run the football. And I, I say keep playing defense like they have, but you know, with an asterisk by that, make sure that you can get some turnovers and takeaways because you haven't been doing that so much so far on defense. Yeah, kind of been riddled with injuries this season, and hopefully, you know, they can continue to right the ship and make a, a playoff push come January. But we got Drew Doherty on the Weekly Brew podcast this week, and uh, Drew, you're pretty active on social media, also very in, heavily involved with Texans TV, and you know, almost every single uh, you know media show that the Texans put out. I guess if you can, uh, for the listeners that kind of want to know a little bit more about what you do, what is the best way? that they can connect with you? And, I, I, you know, I guess also, what does a day-to-day job look like for you in the Texans organization? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, at Doherty Drew is my Twitter handle. And just go on, you know, ABC 13, Saturday night, 6.30. We got Texans Extra Points. I'm the host of that. And then at 11 o'clock on the same channel, um, it's called Texans Buzz. There's a different show 
I do a pretty fun interview with a player each week. It's called Get to Know. This week I've got uh, Bernardrick McKinney singing, so that'll be fun. <laughs> and then day to day, man, there's there's no rhyme or reason to my day, but basically, you know, we we shoot a show on a Wednesday, we shoot a show on a Thursday, we uh, interview players, we write articles. Game days are so much fun. I mean, if it's a home game, I'm out in the parking lot at 8:45 interviewing a tailgater, and then at nine o'clock I'm interviewing a foreign Texan, a former Texan <laughs> in the. Uh, in the Bud Light Plaza, and then I go on the field and give the inactives for the pregame show, and then I go up to the deck and do the pregame show in-house with Chester Pitts, and then I do updates on the video board, do the uh, halftime show with Chester Pitts, go down and, and uh, after the game do a wrap-up for Texans Huddle with John Harris, and I go in the locker room, interview some players, write a few articles, go home and drink a beer or two and go to bed. So <laughs> that's about it. It sounds like you've got a hell of a job, and uh, we definitely appreciate you for uh, taking the time out of your busy week and busy schedule and uh, joining us on the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate y'all being uh, flexible with me. I had some, some goofy stuff going on. The kids, I've got three little kids, and they've been uh, they've been fighting a stomach bug. So I was like at a pharmacy when one of you guys called, and then I got an email <laughs> when I was at a doctor's office at another point. So I appreciate y'all sticking with me and, and having me on the podcast. This is fun. Yeah, we absolutely enjoyed it, and uh, we hope to have you back on soon. You got it. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Sam Kahn Jr., who covers Texas A&M and SEC for ESPN.com and is arguably America's best-dressed sports writer. And Sam, first off, thanks for joining us on this week's show. And let's start things off with the College Football Committee's initial playoff rankings, which were released last week. And I was a little caught off guard with A&M being slotted at number four ahead of an undefeated Washington team and, you know, maybe even Louisville when you look at the eye test. But uh, committee Chairman Kirby Hoka cited that their strength of schedule was a major factor in their ranking. If you're on the committee, are you buying or selling A&M's chances to make the playoffs? Uh, you know, that's a great question. I guess right now I'm selling because Washington still hasn't lost. And to me, at the end of the day, while, while I, I agree wholeheartedly with the logic of A&M's beat schedule being tougher right now, uh, Washington's schedule down the stretch is tougher and the committee is not going to leave a 13-0 and Power 5 champion out of the playoff. That's just the bottom line. So if Washington is able to win out and win the Pac-12 championship game and A&M goes 11-1 and and doesn't get to the SEC championship game, then there's no way in my mind that A&M gets in over Washington. So uh, the, the, the caveat for A&M is they need Washington to lose at some point. What, what the committee made clear by, with these rankings were that A&M is the best one-loss team as it stands right now. And so if they beat LSU at the end of the season, they beat Ole Miss in a couple of weeks, I think they got a shot because – but they're going to need Washington to lose, most likely to lose to Washington State at the end of the year because then that would shut Washington out of the Pac-12 title game. And, and being able to, to be to – comparing the resumes without Washington having that Pac-12 title game, I think will be of utmost importance for A&M's chances. So I, I guess I'd sell it right now because I, I think Washington's a pretty good football team. But – uh, like I said, if they lose that game to Wazoo, then, then all bets are off. Texas A&M this year has made headlines with their defensive play. How important has Trevor Knight been as a, a graduate transfer from Oklahoma to the program, especially after the you know kind of the departures with the quarterbacks uh, this past December? Very much important. I mean, he, he, it could be overstated the leadership that he's provided and the void that he filled. I mean, they had the two quarterbacks transfer in December, as you mentioned, and uh, that was a huge void that they needed to fill. And they had the kind of roster that I thought was going to be able to win nine or ten games possibly. When you look at what they had defensively, when you look at what they had at the offensive skill positions, 
they have a lot of talent, but what they haven't had consistently in the last two, three years was quarterback play, was good quarterback play. They had very up-and-down fortunes at that position with some highs under Kenny Hill and Kyle and, and some lows with both of those guys. And, of course, Kyler Murray came in and, and struggled. But they needed a stabilizing force at that position. They needed a leader. You know, since Kevin Sumlin has been at Texas A&M, they have not had a upperclassman full-time starter at quarterback. They've had freshmen and sophomores. Johnny Manziel was a freshman and a sophomore at the time of the starter. Uh, Kyle Allen was a freshman and a sophomore. Kenny Hill was a sophomore uh, in this time there. You know, Kyler Murray was a true freshman. So they had not had a junior or senior starting quarterback. So to have a 23-year-old uh, graduate transfer, fifth-year senior, who has seen a lot of stuff, who's had some ups, who's had some downs, who has been through quite a bit, uh, he, he's mature enough and has seen enough to where I think he's been a real stabilizing presence for them and a real voice that people can, can look to because he knows what it's like to play in big-time games and, and for big-time teams as he did at Oklahoma. You just kind of alluded to uh, you know the defense during that answer just a little bit, and one of the guys that comes to mind is obviously Miles Garrett, projected top-five pick. Uh, A&M has struggled defensively during the Kevin Sumlin era, but this year they're playing at a, a new level. It seems like everything's finally starting to click, and you know Garrett is just, uh, you know, he's bringing back that wrecking crew for Texas A&M, and you wrote a piece on him in the latest ESPN the magazine, and he's a very eclectic, bright individual, and I'm curious have you ever covered a student athlete like him in your career that has you know the mix of talent that he does on the field but also that drive off of the field never quite as unique as, as miles garrett you know i've covered a lot of really good young men i mean over the years some, some really interesting fascinating individuals over the years and some that are really good just character guys that that, that have you know i guess the right frame of mind off the field miles is one of those guys but miles is probably the most unique i've ever covered in that he, he thinks about things so differently from most kids his age. You know, starting with the social media, he's not into social media. He doesn't have a Twitter account. He doesn't have an Instagram account. He did in high school, but he, uh, you know, decided to delete those before the 20th season. Uh, you know, he's really into service and to helping other people. And uh, he, he's, he's got his mindset on his future interests in outside of football, and I think that's a really good thing to have. I think we're in a time and an era right now where I think you have a lot of young men and, and a lot of players who focus all their effort on their sport and on football, and Miles is not that. Miles has a wide range of interests, you know, whether it's paleontology, whether it's music, he reads a ton. You know, I mean, you ask him who his favorite NFL player was, it was Deacon Jones, the late Deacon Jones from, you know, the 70s who invented the head slap and who invented the sack. I mean, uh, you ask him who his favorite – artist star he's going to give you marvin Gaye and the isley brothers i mean it's just, he's a cool dude he's one of the coolest guys i've ever met and one of the most fascinating things with with me was when we were doing that q a uh we i i had actually had to take a phone call and i told him you know hey as soon as i get the phone call i'm gonna to have to uh we're gonna we'll have to cut the interview because and it was about 20 minutes of us sitting there so it was plenty of time and i and and i said as, as soon as the call comes you're free to go and uh as soon as the call came, I was actually doing a radio interview, and he kind of sat there, and he was just checking his phone. He was kind of listening to what I was saying, and I was laughing in, you know, to myself because, of, you know, I could tell he was agreeing with some of the things I was saying. He was disagreeing with some of the things I was saying because I was talking a little bit about A&M, a little bit about the SEC. And, uh, but, but before he left, he wrote something on my notepad, and I thought, okay, he's probably going to tell me he's got to go because I was still on the phone. And I was like, he's probably going to tell me he's got to go and, you know, whatever. And so I checked the notepad and he writes a 
Bible scripture, like the name of a Bible scripture, and he writes under it how to approach life. And I went and looked it up, and it was about on, on how we should love each other and as, you know, or love others as we do, you know, ourselves as one another. And I was just like, it's just the, one of the most unique interactions you've ever had with anybody with, that, with an ask. I got to say, it, it's, he's a fascinating individual, and uh, I think he's going to be a success in whatever he does, whether it's football or, or anything outside of football. You know, I think that he in particular is extraordinarily or has an extraordinarily wide range of interests and sort of diverse interests and so forth. But but I have I've, I interact, you know, with high school athletes, with college athletes on a pretty regular basis. And it seems to me like they are uh, more well-informed. Now, I don't know if it's the Internet or social media or what it is, but it seems like athletes have a better handle on like uh, social justice and figures from history, civil rights and things like that. Do you think that uh, he's kind of indicative of a trend of athletes becoming more engaged socially and more knowledgeable about uh, about history and the important issues like that? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, when you see what, uh, you know, what Colin Kaepernick and the stance he took and kind of the social climate that we have right now, I think that you have a lot of young athletes and young men who are paying attention to this, and I think they're, they're understanding that it's not just about, you know, sports, not just about what they're doing, that, they, that you know, it does mean something to take a stand and have an opinion. And I think, he, I think it is part of the trend. And I think, uh, I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy to have social consciousness to, uh, you know, express that opinion. And I, it's fascinating to see guys like him use that platform that they have. So obviously you cover uh, primarily the SEC and college football in general. I recall when A&M announced that it was moving to the SEC that there was a lot of uh, a lot of hater talk, you might say, particularly from Texas fans saying they'll never compete, they can't hang in the SEC, it's a bad move or whatever. And then now we see all the nonsense that's gone on with the Big 12, the expansion, not expansion, all the craziness there. How good, in retrospect, does that move look, and how much has it helped A&M to be in the SEC? Oh, it's, it's been a tremendous benefit. I, when you look at how much money they've been able to spend on facilities, you know, over $525 million on football facilities, $485 million on Kyle Field, uh, you know, various football facilities getting improvement, uh, you know, packing the 100,000 people at the stadium. I mean, they already had a great fan base and great fan support, but I think it's grown exponentially because of the SEC move. And, Mainly the publicity, the profile that they've gotten from that. So, you know, playing the two-thirty game on CBS on Saturdays, playing the primetime game, you know, and that coincided with you know Kevin Sumlin and Johnny Manziel's arrival in 2012. If, if Mike Sherman stays, does it happen? I don't know. I don't know if it happens this way or happens that fast. But certainly, it's kind of a perfect storm with Sumlin and Manziel coming in and then having that big 11 season in 2012. If that accelerated the uh, accelerated the uh, the timetable for their success, and I think that that with with all that happening, with that with the move, I think it just it just made everything 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 that everybody thought was going to happen about them getting their head beat in actually turned out to be the opposite. Now, if, if they finish, you know, eleven and if they finish eleven and one this year, they will have won thirty forty seven games in their first five years. I don't think anybody expected. Yeah, you you just mentioned that if they do finish, you know, eleven and one, forty seven wins. To me, that, that that's a very impressive number, and I think a lot of pundits had kind of put Kevin Sumlin on the hot seat entering this season, and he's kind of you know quieted his doubters. It, it, you know, it, it's taken five years, but is his system finally starting to pay dividends at A and M, and are they built for long term success? Well, yes and no. I mean, they they're not running the same offense. I mean, it, it, it's similar, but they have made. Uh, they, they're not running the same tempo all the time. Uh, they do incorporate to the tight end. They, they they are a little bit more dedicated to the running game than they ever were. 
But I think I think they, if they can recruit at the level that they have, then I think they can. Uh, certainly next year when they lose Miles Garrett and some of these other big-time defensive players, I think it's going to be tough. But I think they do have a chance to see long-term at the time. The question is, Kevin Thompson going to be around? You know, does he want to stay long-term, or is he going to think about going to the this year? I think that will be a deep concern. I actually heard you on the Dave Campbell Texas football uh, show or podcast a couple of months ago. You're talking about recruiting in the state of Texas, and they kind of commented on how it shifted from Texas being king uh, to now you have a lot of good programs. I mean, you got your TCUs and Baylors are kind of a, a notch below, maybe like your Texas and your Texas A&M is an SEC school that's powerful. Houston uh, plays an interesting role in all of that. I think you know they got Ed Oliver, and a lot of kids are sort of viewing that as an option here. Who do you see as kind of taking uh, the lead headed into the next five or six years? What a what is Houston? need to do to be competitive in recruiting these Houston kids and B, who's kind of winning that battle among the Texas schools? It's really been hard to tell because I think before this season, I think you could argue that Baylor was winning that battle before the Art Brown. But then not that happened and that changed everything. Uh, you, you look at Houston and Furman has done a great job there, but how long is it going to be there? Uh, if they make a change at Texas, you know, what's going to happen with Texas? I think it's hard to tell right now where it's going to go. You know, CCU's done a good job, A&M's done a good job. But I think it's right now just the balance of power, so to speak, in recruiting. I think that it's up for grabs. I really do, because I think we'll have to see how it shakes out. If the Texas hires Tom Herman, I think you can make an argument that uh, that they're going to have a chance to uh, to really make a wave in recruiting and, and have a chance to maybe take it over again. But but if Texas A&M goes 11-1, I think they have a chance to that they could very well be the premier team in recruiting the state. Baylor, I think, is going to suffer based on the fallout of everything that's happened there. Uh, I don't know that he's going to want to control the state. As for Houston, they just have to continue to hire really good coaches, and they've done a good job replacing Kevin uh, you know, Sumlin, replacing uh, Art Bryles, you know, they'll have to do a good job of replacing Tom Herman. So uh, whenever that time comes. But uh, I think if he, can, if he stays long-term, if that happens, then, yeah, they got a shot. That otherwise, it depends on who they hire. Maybe it's a lane tip or somebody like that, but they have to bring in somebody with a strong recruiting presence that can get done to use them because Herman has shown that you can really uh, do a good job just by focusing on city of Houston and, and talent from this region. I'm kind of sticking with the coaching carousel and the SEC. Uh, you know, the big job coming open is the LSU job. Uh, Les Miles obviously fired after that loss against Auburn this year, and Ed Ordron is, you know, kind of, I don't know, giving that team a little bit of a boost. And, and you know, they have a, uh, you, you know, a fighting chance to, uh, you know, make a push late in the season. And, and when you're looking at potential candidates for that role, I mean, LSU is a school that recruits itself. Uh, is Orgeron a long-term candidate or, you know, is a guy like Tom Herman potentially in the mix? Or what do you see happening with LSU when they name a head coach, likely in December or January? Ed Orgeron, I think, the best shot he has is winning out. They have to win the rest of the game. They have a shot. Uh, otherwise, I think they're going to look strong going outside. He's a Jimbo Fisher at Florida State or Tom Herman. Those would be the top candidates. Uh, Jimbo, from what I've heard, you know, was, there was a serious talk about him making that switch, but they, they got full speed on the smiles at the end of it. So that made it a little bit more difficult to make happen. So I think Jimbo and Tom are the first two. I think if they swing and miss, there's certainly a chance that Ed Oak will still get it. But I think this shot comes if uh, if he wins out and they uh, run the table the rest of the way. 
Uh, Sam, one of the last questions that I want to ask you is uh, is about Connor McQueen. And, you know, as some of our listeners know, I'm a former uh, SID at both Baylor and Louisiana Tech. And uh, prior to jumping into the energy sector, uh, I covered Connor when he was, you know, playing at Klein Oak. And uh, he was one of the most diehard leaders that I've seen. Uh, you know, very competitive, you know, had that team rally around him. And it seems like that has translated to Texas A&M. I mean, he was a walk-on, granted a scholarship. Uh, he seems to be, you know, just an icon on campus hosting, you know, a TV show and, uh, you know, he's graduating with his master's degree. How important is a guy like Connor McQueen for, you know, the 12th man movement? And uh, how do you see his career kind of shaping out after he leaves Texas A&M? I mean, you, know, you have to have guys like that on this team because, you know, not everyone's going to be a star. Not everyone's going to get the glory and have playing time. But having guys like him, you know, that care about the team, that put everything they have into it, it matters. It really does on the football team because uh, you can't have a bunch of you have to have guys who care about this team and that, that put, you know, are very selfless in this way. He has some that. You know, after football, I think, I, you know, I don't know if he's going to coach. I think he's probably got a good future in business, even if working on his matching accounting. I think uh, he'll be really good, but there's no doubt that what he's uh, done at A&M, both, you know, just being a passive role on special teams, being kind of, as I said, maybe the most visible third-string quarterback out there. Uh, it's given him a platform that people are going to know who he is when he gets out, and I think uh, what it is. But he's been really good at that team, and if you're a team, you talk about it, tells you how much he's and how much they need him. Uh, and, and I think it's part, it gives you an idea of the kind of chemistry that, uh, that maybe wasn't there in the past couple of years. And maybe they're on their way to the we have Sam Cobb Jr. on the Weekly Brew Podcast this week. And uh, Sam, uh, you know, you do a lot of great work with ESPN.com covering both the Aggies and uh, the SEC as a whole. Uh, for our listeners that want to, you know, keep up with your work and follow you on social media or ESPN, what is the best way for them to connect with you online? Uh, just on my Twitter, at Epson Jr. Normally, it's anything worth a damn, I'll post it on there. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, uh, just on our ESPN.com college football page. Uh, normally on the SEC blog, but you can find me on some of the other uh, things, sometimes a little bit on Houston, uh, sometimes maybe on Big 12 once in a while. So uh, just hit our college football page, on you'll find a way to find me there somewhere. And uh, But on my Twitter, if it's, like I said, if it's worth anything, I'll look. Uh, well, we definitely appreciate you taking the time and joining us this week on the podcast. And uh, Sam, uh, you know, make sure to follow him on Twitter. And uh, Sam, best of luck this year covering the rest of the SEC. It looks like we're going to have some of those teams in the playoff mix, and uh, it should be a wild ride. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Closing time. We just had two great interviews. Thanks to Drew Doherty for Texans TV for joining us on the podcast. Also, Sam Khan Jr. from the ESPN.com and the SEC Network for joining us. And, uh, you know, there were some technical difficulties with the audio, but we appreciate him for taking the time and joining us. And, uh, Kevin, uh, I, I really enjoyed talking with Drew, especially Andre Johnson. It was just so great to reflect on the type of career that he had with the Texans. Absolutely. He had a good perspective. He did not allow himself to get sucked into the discussion of Andre Johnson uh, beating up on Cortland Finnegan. If you noticed when I pitched that question to him, he immediately pivoted. That guy is a true professional. I'm sure the Texans appreciate what he does for them week in and week out. Uh, he was not getting sucked into that discussion. That is my favorite Andre Johnson memory. I think I'm not alone in that, judging by the social media response when he announced his retirement. And I don't. that's not a slander or a slap on him. That was a genuinely great moment, and he got the game ball after that game, if you recall. I think he deserved it for whooping Cortland Finnegan alone. But anyway, that's, that's a memory that stands out to me. Drew had a lot more legitimate football memories uh, that he contributed, and we appreciate him being on the show to talk about Andre Johnson. And a little bit about Arian Foster, who is a, a slightly more maligned figure but but an equally interesting guy i think maybe more so 
Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, speaking of another interesting guy, Miles Garrett from Texas A&M. Sam Conn Jr. spoke great things about him. Uh, he's got a great article on ESPN the magazine, so check that out on Miles Garrett. He's uh, a fascinating character, probably one of the most talented defensive players in the country. He's probably going to be a top five, top ten pick this year in the NFL draft. But uh, Jeremy, uh, I- I'm curious after listening to both interviews, what were what were some of your thoughts? Well, I think Andre Johnson. I mean, just huge for the Texans. Huge. I mean, like I, I-, I pay attention more-, more to the NFL than pretty anything else when college football's not on. So um, Andre Johnson over the years was always a pleasure to watch you know kind of sad we lost the way we did but um you know just just amazing uh hearing about you know what he meant to this city um honestly right now i'm sort of uh thinking more about um all the celebrity voices we had on earlier in the show which i just cannot get out of my head um i believe we uh, might have one here for the outro I'm not mistaken. Speaking of, uh, you know, all the voices that we had, those were courtesy of Hunter Atkins, uh, who's a sports reporter for the Houston Chronicle. And very well connected. Knows a lot of guys that he was able to bring into the studio. So we appreciate him for reaching out to his network and bringing those guys in to talk. We asked him to join us this week. And, uh, you know, we thought it was just going to be Hunter. But, I mean, he he came and brought it. He brought Tim Kirkshin, Doc Rivers, Matthew McConaughey. I mean, how many other podcasts in the city of Houston can claim that they've had those guests in one show? I mean, we, we say that we are the voice of Houston, and that's why. Obviously, a terrific episode. We appreciate everyone who joined us today, all the many uh, various disparate personalities who brought their hilarious takes on the world of sports and the world in gener- uh, general. Matthew McConaughey had some interesting thoughts on, on what it means to be a man and uh, to be a person in today's society. We appreciate that perspective. But uh, in any case, uh, another wonderful episode. I'm satisfied. I could not feel better about myself or about the product that we've put out. How are you feeling, Austin? Why are we talking about how we feel? So what is that? Is that what this podcast is about? Who gives a crap what you guys feel? Let's just talk about why the Rockets suck. We <laughs> also do, do that too. Uh, but but yeah, I, I was more satisfied with this podcast today than I was uh, Baylor's performance in Waco yesterday. Uh, again, Bears getting blown out by TCU, and I think rightly so, 62-22. But they deserve it. They, they did deserve it. And, uh, you know, I, Hunter, thanks for joining us in the We Dessert studio. It's been a blast having you here. I'm so grateful you guys have me. I, honestly, I'll be back anytime. I will write an iTunes review. There we go. Uh, happily. Uh, can I just offer a quick plug? Yeah. Okay. If anybody wants to see any of my work, follow me. Uh, I'm on Twitter at HunterAtkins35. Uh, it's just my name with the number 35. Uh, right for the Houston Chronicle. We have, uh, I, I just want to also urge people to check out, we have a 30-minute sports show every Sunday night. That unfortunately, it's buried so deep on the schedule that a lot of people miss it. But uh, your local NBC station in Houston, after the game, after the post game, after the news, after the Sports Sunday with uh, McElvoy, Randy McElvoy, then the Houston Chronicle has a 30 minute sports show where we offer our analysis. Uh, I'm on it periodically. I'm going to be on, uh, we're, we're taking this on Sunday, so I'll be on tonight. You know, if you hear this, it'll be too late, but just check <laughs> it out. Uh, I will actually also be offering a new, a new voice on uh, tonight. Cubs win! Cubs win! Hi, Austin! Let me ask you a question. You like the Astros, right? I do. I, I you know, I, I love your, I love your, I love your Harry Carey. But can you do, a, can you do Milo Hamilton? Who's that? <laughs> Let me tell you something. I love the Astros. You know why? Why? My fascination with outer space. Because <laughs> if the moon, right, the moon were made of spare ribs, would you eat it? What's your point? <laughs> I, I think Harry Carey's had a little too much Budweiser right now. Cows live. Cows live. Holy cow! <laughs> well, Hunter, uh, Harry, I guess. Uh, we definitely appreciate you for joining us this week. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks for having me again. 
All right. So if you enjoyed Hunter on the podcast today, uh, go tell us on iTunes. Go tell us that you enjoyed him. Also, make sure to follow him on social media and check out his show, which I believe airs at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. on KPRC. That's not true. That's not true. It's No, it's usually, honestly, it's between the hours probably of 7, uh, excuse me, of 11.30 p.m. and 12.30 p.m. It's going to be in there. The reason why you want to watch it is because, fine, you've seen all your highlights all day. Now you get to get analysis from the people that cover the teams most intimately. Yeah. It's hosted by Jerome Solomon, our awesome columnist. You're always going to have John McClain, who's hilarious and smart on it. Brian T. Smith, Jenny Dow Creech, um, and then you know you have me wasting a lot of people's time being really silly. Yeah, no, it's definitely worth checking out. Also, I would say that it, keep an eye out. I have a really big story coming out about uh, the lack of black head coaches in college football. So for all the joking that I've made today, that's going to be a really fun and interesting uh, read for people. Definitely looking forward to seeing that. And uh, once that comes out, we'll be sure to uh, share it on our social media pages as well. But again, make sure to go follow Hunter, uh, watch his show on KPRC. Uh, and if you can't stay up that late, make sure to DVR it and watch it the very first thing in the morning right when you get up. Uh, it's it's going to be great. Uh, it, a lot of great talent there uh, from the Houston Chronicle. And there's a good reason why we've had a lot of Chronicle guests on our podcast because they put out great work week in and week out. Uh, but, uh, you know, we had a lot of fun this week. We thank again Hunter for joining us in the We Desert studio. For my co-host this week, Kevin Cook and Jeremy Paxson. I'm Austin Statton. We'll see you next week. And guys, remember this week, no matter who you are, where you go, or what you do, always, always brew responsibly. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew. 